Hey guys, uh, several people have written to me for the past few months saying you have to have my current guest on the show. And so all of your requests have been met. <laughs> Professor Janice Fiamengo, how you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Good, good. So you're a professor at the University of Ottawa in, yes. the, in the English department. Uh, mm -hmm. I recently gave a talk at the University of Ottawa on political correctness and the thought police. And I had been warned that it could be like walking into a viper's den. But uh, luckily, other than a few folks at the end of my talk who were a bit difficult to handle, uh, I think it went famously well. Uh, are you surprised by that reality, given your experience at some of these schools? Well, I'm really glad it went well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my experience there wasn't so good. But, um, um, you know, perhaps the topic I chose was a particularly inflammatory one. You, you know, I guess that I wasn't able to finish my talk about rape culture at the University of Ottawa. It was a time when uh, there was a lot of talk about rape culture as a result of uh, two incidents, neither of which I felt indicated that a rape culture existed. And so I decided to give a talk and to raise that question. What do we mean when we talk about rape culture? But it wasn't able to go forward. So um, I had people uh, right from the beginning blowing horns and singing the Communist International and banging drums and all of that. And then eventually when we moved into another room, finally, after the security guards pleaded with the protesters to allow the talk to go forward, we finally moved into another room. But not surprisingly, the protesters came into the second room too and kept interrupting and then eventually the fire alarm went off so and they couldn't get it to stop. So so that was the end of that. That was my experience of talking at the University of Ottawa. And you've had similar experiences, I think, at University of Toronto and at Queen's and maybe others, right? And is it always sort of the same pattern that manifests itself? Yeah, the uh, University of Toronto, I was able to give the talk, although the fire alarm went off right at the very beginning. Uh, Queen's University uh, was pretty successful. There were a lot of people there who didn't like me, um, but, uh, you know, that's fine, of course. And, and I think that was a good talk in that uh, we had a long and pretty engaged and lively Q&A afterwards. And so that talk was fine. And those are the only ones I've had. So, but, so gotcha. two out of three have... And not, you, not been so great. Usually, I mean, I think you're, you're, the main topics that sort of strike the ire in many of these social justice warrior types is your positions on sort of, you call yourself an anti-feminist, and we can sort of drill down on what we mean by feminism and which types of feminism we might, of course, support and which are complete lunacy, but also the fact that you're an advocate for men's rights. Now, are these two things, anti-feminism and men's rights, something that we can speak about independently and decouple them? Or does one sort of lead to the other naturally? Well, I think probably one pretty much leads to the other. I, I think most people who identify themselves as anti-feminists are also concerned about men's rights and the ways in which feminism seems to have devolved into a ideology full of hatred for men, or at least full of uh, a perception that men are to blame for everything and that men, uh, where they can be shown to be suffering in some way, um, either deserve that suffering or it is so trivial as not to be worth bothering about. Um, I, I guess I know a number of men's advocates who, who would 
say that they're not anti-feminists. They would say that they believe in the good feminism, the feminism that is genuinely about equality of the sexes, and they don't see those two as mutually exclusive. For me, they are. I mean, I don't, I don't, I just don't know of a feminism, a mainstream feminism that is at all interested in the experience of men or that is willing to admit that women have achieved all of the major reform goals that the movement stated it wanted to achieve and that women are now advantaged in many, many spheres of society. Uh, if feminists admitted that and said, well, there are still certain issues that we want to work on, but we're very committed to being concerned about men's equality too, well, then obviously I wouldn't have any objection to it whatsoever. But all I hear at the university and in the larger society is that yet more needs to be done for women. And I, sorry, go ahead. It, anyway, I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's astounding to me that we can continue this charade, charade of pretending that, that, that there more needs to be done. Just recently, uh, an officer for gender equity was created at the University of Ottawa. This was an appointment made announced in April of this year. And she is going to spend a lot of money investigating the so-called challenges and so-called barriers that face women at the University of Ottawa. The fact is that women are advantaged at, at every stage of the process. Women outnumber men at every university across North America. Women are hired in higher numbers. There are affirmative action hiring programs to advantage women at every university in North America. There are all sorts of special programs to promote women's research and to make the university a more comfortable place for them in all sorts of other ways with the hysteria around rape culture and so-called sexual harassment. Men are disadvantaged, afraid to speak, afraid to be natural, afraid to you know, close the office door when they have a female student in their office. Uh, and it's ludicrous to pretend that we need an office for gender equity to help women out of the supposed you know, hellhole that patriarchy has created for them. So let me, let me, let me sort of add to what you're saying. So I, I uh, put up a few sad truth clips on my channel uh, that sort of speak to some of your realities. I'll, I'll mention two now because they sort of fit with what you're talking about. So one was a a clip where I summarized the results of a, a study from the U.S. Uh, you know education department. I don't, I don't remember the exact name of the office where they looked at the ratio of men to women. So now just listen to these stats sort of carefully. So across four university degrees, so the associate degree, which in the U.S. is sort of half a bachelor's, uh, the bachelor's degree, master's degree, and doctoral degree. So there were four levels of education, and then they broke it up across five racial categories. And so there were basically 20 cells, right? Four educational groups uh, or diplomas by five races. And so in each of those 20 cells, you could then calculate what is the ratio of males to females? Can you guess in how many of those cells men outnumbered women? In none, probably. <laughs> exactly correct. So, I mean, just think about this, right? You, I mean, it, it's impossible to make up data that is any more inconsistent with the narrative. Yet my narrative of victimology is unassailable. It doesn't matter which evidence you provide me, even evidence 
that is so profoundly clear as this, I will not budge from my position because I can point to some department in the classics department at Purdue University where male professors at the associate professor level are more than females. Aha, we've uncovered the patriarchal influence, right? Yes. Yeah, one of the um, issues that the uh, new office officer for gender equity pointed to was that um, at the promotion to full professor level, women professors lagged behind male professors by six months overall. Um, you know, what, what exactly that means, um, why that might be, was not discussed. It's simply presented as a self-evident case of bias against women, that someone is you know, holding these women back or, or right. something like that. Uh, all of the other ways in which women are clearly advantaged are completely you know, erased from, from these discussions. The dishonesty of that and you know, the obvious uh, fantasy land that these people are occupying is just astounding to me. And yet very few people seem to call them on it. And uh, women are quite happy to continue to take the perks, it seems, in so, most cases. So in a second, I will ask you to sort of maybe discuss why you think some of these, you know, why people's inability to sort of revise their narrative in light of new evidence, why that might be the case. But before I do that, sort of going to the men's rights issue, uh, I did another clip where I looked at four key metrics of life outcomes. Uh, number one, lifespan of men and women. Number mm -hmm. two, homicide victims broken down by sex. I mean, this is global data. Number three, suicide data globally. Number four, workplace deaths. <laughs> and the, the, uh, the numbers in terms of m men being, you know, profoundly the greater victims and the ones who have the worst outcomes in each of those four really important, I mean, this is death, right? Mm. Uh, are astonishing, but apparently the patriarchy hasn't gotten around to solving some of those problems that make men die earlier, die more, kill themselves more, and so on. Yeah. Well, and feminists would say in response to that, if they did deal with the data, they would say that that is the fault of patriarchy, and maybe it is even to some extent. Um, what patriarchy has meant traditionally is a system in which men were expected to sacrifice their bodies in labor and to sacrifice their lives in war or in catastrophes such as the you know Titanic sinking in order to protect women and children. And uh, so feminists will say, uh, so that's the patriarchy and the patriarchy supposedly creates certain characteristics in men such as aggression. Uh, you know, such as uh, risk-taking behavior. And these couldn't be linked to, say, this little thing I like to call biology? Mm -hmm. Well, you know that feminists are have a very uncomfortable relationship yes, yes. with biology. Well, biology is a patriarchal construct, it's, right? Of course, it's all a social construct, at least whenever it is uh, convenient to women to say that it is. So, so they will say that the patriarchy creates these traits... And that if men would simply become more like women or like feminists say they should be, then they won't die so early, then they won't commit suicide, then they will not be involved in homicides, etc., etc. They never get around to some of the other stats that have recently been pointed out, such as the fact that for the same 
for the commission of the exact same crimes, men are much more likely to be charged, much more likely to be given a prison sentence, and much more likely to be given a very lengthy prison sentence for the exact same crimes. Now, how that is the fault of patriarchy and why feminists aren't concerned about that glaring inequity in the legal system, you know, I'm not sure how they would argue it, but that's what they always do. And I've encountered that as soon as I started speaking on these subjects uh, about three years ago, was that a lot of feminists would come forward and say, I didn't understand. And that all of the issues I was identifying were actually issues that feminists were actively working on. And yeah, they do. You know, I've had students in women's studies courses say, oh, we do discuss men's issues in our women's studies classes. And feminism is very concerned about men's lives. But what that actually means is that feminism is concerned about uh, really defining masculinity as a kind of disease that could be cured by feminism. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, that doesn't, doesn't make my sense of self feel good to know that I'm sort of born with an original sin to sort of yeah. take Christian theology, right? I mean, being well, born male is, is, is being tainted, correct? Yes, it is. Absolutely, it is. I mean, it takes, I think feminism has taken all of the aspects of um, Christian theology that were most damning and judgmental, you know, without the aspects of Christianity that, that were uplifting and hopeful, the idea of a, of a loving God and, and of no sin being, you know, beyond forgiveness. In the feminist worldview, the sin of being born male is the original sin that ultimately can't be forgiven unless one identifies against one's own sex and devotes one's whole life to talking about how terrible men are and how wonderful women are, then you might be forgiven. Although even then, you're not really sure. Uh, it's much more um, it's much more like the Islamic view of God, where you're, you're, you're never really sure whether you're going to be saved or not, ultimately. And uh, you know, um, there is actually a, a website that uh, my friend Steve, who does my videos for me, that he discovered, um, and it's called the Mascopathy website. And it is an institute supposedly devoted to curing the disease of masculinity. How do you do that? And how, it has. How do you cure that? Well, through counseling and, you know, workshops and all of that sort of thing by men un unlearning, supposedly, the social construction of masculinity, unlearning their aggression, their rage, their competitiveness, their, you know, whatever it is, their individuality, whatever it happens to be, through therapy. And they have therapists and psychoanalysts and even a Christian pastor, I think, on board. And, and it's a beautiful site, very well maintained. It's got lots of articles. It's very serious. I thought it was a joke at first. And the very first line on the site says something like, you know, men do terrible things and we're here to help. Got and, it. You know, that's it. So the end result of the therapy is to have men who are castrato, basically, right? Uh, mm -hmm. That's that's the goal. You have to basically get, get rid of the testicles and then we have a more gentle society. Yeah. Got, got, got it. That's it. I'm, yeah. I'm signing up. Yeah, and if men will just constantly apologize right. for their maleness, and you know, I've seen that at uh, at these talks that I've given, where men will stand up and before they even speak, they have to do their check their privilege and talk about how they're white and they're male, and that means therefore they 
you know, they can't really understand the experience of victimization and they have to apologize for that and erase themselves in some way and acknowledge how terrible they are. And then they might be allowed to speak as long as it's in favor of feminism. So, so how do we reconcile? And I want to get back in a second to some of the psychological reasons why some of the folks take these positions. Uh, but before we do that, I mean, how do we reconcile uh, this website, for example, that's trying to redefine what masculinity is with the innumerable data from throughout history, from all sorts of scientific sources, from daily life that suggests that we know very clearly the type of men that women desire. I'm talking sexually as mates. And usually those men are not pear-shaped, uh, high-pitched nosed, uh, fetal, sitting in a fetal position with their uh, thumbs in their mouths, crying while eating ice cream and listening to Taylor Swift music. Uh, <laughs> rather, they tend to be socially dominant, high status men, risk takers. Uh, I mean, exactly all of the stereotypical things that make a man a man, since after all, we are this little thing known as a sexually reproducing species that has sexual dimorphism, meaning it is part of the innate reality of homo sapiens to have basic biological differences between men and women and therefore we would expect that men would have recurringly preferred certain types of women as their ideal mates and same thing for women and i mean nothing could be clearer than that uh, short of the existence of gravity and so how do the feminists reconcile what i just said is it that well it's all been part of a patriarchal conspiracy to create you guessed it. I mean, you know the answer, right? So what? That's the way it's been all of yes. history. Well, why wouldn't it be? Because all of history has been a patriarchal conspiracy. So, of course, women were trained to think that that's the right. kind of man they desire. And men were trained. And what a yes. terrible damage it did to men. Men were trained to think that's how they had to be, rather than the gentle, loving, self-effacing, nurturing people that they could just as easily have been. I was reading a, a text on gender that is used in a first year course at the University of British Columbia, which is where I did all my degrees. And uh, it's in their first year course, Introduction to Intersectional Feminist Theory, or Gender Theory, I forget. They, they're getting away from feminist and women in these titles now. They're much more interested in gender because that encompasses a wider range of types of victimology and, and even social justice. But anyway, so this was a course on, uh, on gender and the core text on gender made that argument about social constructionism. But it goes further uh, even to say that heterosexuality itself yes. is a social construct. Yes, yes. There is nothing natural about female desire for men or vice versa. That, that is, it's an institution that women come to think they desire men because, you know, they see images of, uh, you know, heterosexual romance everywhere they look in modern culture. And, uh, you know, so the whole thing is something that has been constructed by the patriarchy and that can be undone and remade in a more socially useful way. And, and, you know, that may not involve reproduction at all, or it may involve reproduction maybe only, you know, just for the purpose of reproduction. But um, many feminists, I think, envision an end to the institution of heterosexuality and, you know, different kinds of families. They would be better families. There wouldn't be any more domestic violence, even though, of course, statistics don't bear that out. They show that 
lesbians and gay men are violent as well. But you know, all of that gets erased in the feminist utopia that's being imagined. And and so yes, uh, they they want to uh, throw out all of heterosexual history and uh, start from the ground up with a new kind of human being and a new kind of family. Yeah, Julie Bindle. I did a clip on her and she talked about that we should sort of put a moratorium on heterosexuality. So so basically reproduction, the sperm, ova, that's all social construction, right? It's not, it's not rooted in any biology, right? Yeah, I mean, they would say that there is some biology. You know, these, these people are, are smart in most cases. They would say, yeah, there is biology, but they would say we can never really understand its significance because that is layered over with all of this right. social construction or they don't even say construction anymore i think i'm showing my age it's, they say now socially things are socially determined right and so um so you could yes there is a biological reality but how that actually impacts who we are and you know how we behave in, in our lives and that none of that can be really known because from the you know first day we're born we begin to be conditioned so we can never get back to some sort of pre socially conditioned reality and that's what post-structuralism enabled them to argue we can never get back to an origin we can never get back to any kind of pure being uh, so therefore all those arguments you're making are tainted by biases and ideological assumptions and, and your notion of what biology is and how it affects the human being is just a you know, it's all ideology so here's how i would response respond to all this nonsense and as you know i've been fighting this stuff for close you know over two decades in my work uh no, no serious evolutionists so none of my colleagues myself included would argue that socialization is unimportant we are creatures that are prone to a wide variety of so you know socialization forces uh now the question to ask is why do recurring universal patterns of socialization that transcend time and place occur in exactly the same way, right? And there, the argument is that socialization mechanisms do not somehow exist as antithetical to biology. They exist in their form because of biology. So in yeah. other words, when parents socialize little boys and little girls differently to the extent that they do in certain contexts, they're doing so precisely to put an accent to put the emphasis on uh, biological imperatives, and hence it's nurture via nature. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so again, most yeah. most of the sort of radical feminists sort of miss this point because they consistently pit nature against nurture. And of course, as I've explained in innumerable cases, uh, these two things are inextricable. I mean, that you cannot take you cannot tease them apart. Uh, so, yeah. there you go. Yeah, and I don't know all the, the you know particular arguments they would make, but there are lots of feminists who are very interested now in biology yes. and you know in, in in harnessing it for a feminist agenda. So yes. they find ways of saying that um, you know that that they recognize that point. Um, but what they would often do, I think, is they'll find cases where there is variation in in culture. And say, you know, look at this, look at the very different way, you know, some tribe in Papua New Guinea that has, you know, a different understanding of, of the gender order or something like that. And they'll, they'll find these things and say, here is our evidence that although, yes, we see these various patterns, it doesn't always have to be like this. And, 
you know, they'll always, they always find some way of, of taking it back to, to their case that the world can be radically remade according to a feminist vision. And, well, and, and that comes from another sort of canard from the social constructivist movement, and that being basically the tabula rasa premise of the human mind, yeah. right? So if you start with the idea that what makes us human is that we are strictly cultural animals, therefore we are born with empty minds that are only then filled, the vessels are filled by a wide range of socialization forces. That's why we could all be born and then grow up to be Michael Jordan, or we could all have interchangeable genders. We could be anything we want to be because we're all born with equal potentiality. We're all born with empty slate minds. And of course, I mean, to the average three-year-old, this is falsifiable, Mm. Uh, but they simply won't concede that there is anything that is innate. I mean, even things that we've clearly demonstrated that little infants exhibit in the pre-socialization stage of mm-hmm. their cognitive development. And there's endless yeah. studies that show and this. Mm-hmm. So, so it's just... Yeah. So it's, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, well, again, yeah. It, uh, it, in the book that I... Or the chapter that I was looking at just recently, the implication always was that that uh, you know these studies that show you know that um, uh, male babies respond differently to stimuli than female babies they, they find something that's problematic about those studies they find biases in the researchers they suggest that there is a social agenda that's uh, you know uh, powering that kind of research and I don't know I mean when you when you confront people that are so deeply wedded to the ideology that gives them, their, ide- their identity, their purpose in life, of course, their whole careers as well, um, it's very difficult to dislodge them. So, so okay, that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful place to sort of ask the next question I want to ask. So we, we, we can all agree, all sort of clear-thinking, liberal, truly liberal people can agree that men and women should be fully equal under the law in all sort of political, economic, social contexts. So that's true feminism, and you and I if that's the definition, would call ourselves feminists. Now, of course, the feminism that we're speaking of is not that. It's this it's sort of the, the, the lunatic f- fringe that sort of does all the things that we're talking about. So what do you think drives them? I mean, is it is it just that they've somehow been parasitized by a form of quasi-religious belief for whatever reason, and that once you take this leap of faith, very much how when you believe in religion, you suspend reason you suspend evidence you suspend the scientific method because it seems as though their cognitive processes are very much akin to someone who's very religious right there's it's impossible to penetrate their armor with any reasoned argument so what do you think is going on i mean is, is there a way to answer this have there been any studies that have sort of looked at the psychological reasons why people can take positions that are so removed from reality yeah, well, that's the big question, and I don't know of any, you know, any studies that would tell us why this is. Um, you know, having been a feminist myself, I can say that it is a very pleasurable kind of faith. Um, it promises absolution from sin, just in the way that uh, faith does, but it doesn't require the the things that real faiths do, which is actual. You know, work on yourself to become a better person, and you know, self-giving and loving of people, even of your enemies, as in the Christian tradition. Um, feminism allows you to hate your enemies and to believe yourself innocent. Uh, it gives you a very powerful voice in our society. 
uh, a voice that can demand to be listened to and can can demand you know all sorts of actions be taken immediately simply to make a claim on your university campus that you feel threatened by something or that something makes you feel unsafe and usually administrators will hop to and you know do whatever it is this uh, group is demanding so that's a very um, you know, wonderfully pleasurable feeling of power but there's no responsibility that goes along with that power because feminism claims that women are innocent victims and um, so I, I think it's pretty hard to give up it's 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 a good gig and so, um, oh, it, it, it garners a lot of public sympathy uh, very little opposition, and uh, it, it allows a bonding amongst people with that shared ideology that's also lots of fun. There's lots of things to do. There's always a protest to go to or, you know, a women-centered organizer or poster campaign or whatever. It happens to be you can liaise with the police or, you know, with various organizations in society to talk about how that, that uh, organization can better serve the needs of women and you know, it's just it gives you all sorts of things to do in your life and a wonderful self-identity so you know who'd want to give it up except some people do and that it's an interesting question why some people do i was going to ask you exactly that right i mean what is it in the unique random combination of genes that have led to the personhood known as janice fiamengo that rejects this lunacy right i mean you just listed a whole bunch of sort of pleasurable outcomes uh, that come with my joining the club called Radical Feminist, and yet you've yeah. said, no, I won't put up with that. I'm going to speak out against that. So what, and I, perhaps you obviously don't have an answer to it, but let's try to hypothesize. What is it that makes you and others, Christina Huff Summers and others, different that you just reject that at great personal, if not professional cost? Yeah, I... I uh, I don't know exactly, you know, I guess you could uh, give a kind of psychoanalytical reading of it and say that um, I, I knew, I have known still now, I'm happily married, I have known many wonderful men, and so I could simply see that that wasn't the case. I'm that, seeing the patriarchal influence <laughs> subjugating you right there, but go ahead, yes. Yeah, you know, I had a, I still have a wonderful father, and so I could <sighs> see he didn't fit the model, and I love my dad, and... Uh, so in some sense, I guess, you know, that the, 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 my lived reality, as they say, uh, always opposed the narrative. Um, but I don't think that's the only reason, because I know all sorts of women who are very committed feminists. And these are mothers of sons whom they presumably love very much. And yet they still are pursuing a... Um, you know, a, a vision of the world that would disadvantage their sons. Uh, how, you know, they reconcile those two aspects of who they are, I don't really understand. And I can't imagine that every single one of those women had a terrible relationship with her father. You know, it might be the case, I suppose, but um, it doesn't seem right to me. So, so I don't know. I really, I don't know why. Um, I, you know, I've, one of my Fiamengo files, I speculate that um, feminism is, uh, or that at least it attracts people and, and then exacerbates um, certain kinds of personality disorders, um, you know, narcissism, victim mentality, those, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, I think I, heard, I remember you mentioning maybe Chausen's uh, syndrome once, um, you know, this, this desire to see oneself as harmed and therefore to base an identity and claims to sympathy on that. 
Um, you know, I, that, that's possible too, but I've met so many different women, different types of women, you know, they, they didn't all seem to be personality disordered and yet, um, their anger, uh, you know, when, when their worldview was challenged, their defensiveness, you know, this clinging to this idea. I know I've met women who will, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll hearken back to like one thing that happened to them. There might be 50 now. And they remember at age 19 that some teacher said something, you know, that they didn't think women should do certain kinds of professions or something, some minor thing where probably every other man they met, if their experience was anything like mine, every other man they met was probably supportive and respectful and, you know, treated them as equal human beings. But they remember this one thing and that becomes the grounding of this huge monumental sense of grievance. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I guess human beings do have a desire to feel that, to feel we are victims. Lots of us feel we don't get that love and recognition that we deserve. And so feminism is a gives a ready-made framework. for. Here's another theory for you. Uh, and there's actually some empirical evidence for this in, in one particular form. And I, I think I might have discussed this briefly with Christine, Christina Huff-Summers when she was on the show. So I think that for a strand of feminism. So this, this, of course, doesn't apply to all of the radical feminists, but there is one group of radical feminists who actually take the positions that they do because it is a form of intrasexual competition. You, you follow what I'm saying? So in other words, we know, we know from evolutionary theory that men will do things to derogate other men so that they come out on top. Women do sex-specific things to other women to derogate them, to humiliate them, to gossip about them, to attack them. So that, and because there's a constant mating struggle, typically that happens within the sex. So contrary sort of to the patriarchal argument of, you know, men trying to subjugate women, typically most of the competition in a mating context happens intrasexually, right? So if that's the case, then if I happen to be, I'm speaking now as a one of those radical female feminists, if I happen to not fare very well in the mating market, uh, for whatever reason, let's take, for example, physically, I may be uh, less than desirable based on patriarchal definitions of beauty, right? I'm grossly overweight. I'm very unattractive. Much of my life experience has suggested that I haven't had much success uh, interacting with men. Well, then I can create a narrative that certainly is less injurious to my sense of self, right? First of all, all of these standards of beauty are social constructions. In a just world, I would be just as attractive as anybody else. That makes me feel a lot better. Plus, what I'm going to do is I'm going to now find ways to suppress all of those images of those other women that are promulgating those sexist beauty images, right? So no more sexist advertising, no more gorgeous women in Hollywood images, right? Ultimately, what I'm doing is I'm finding a very insidious and pernicious way to engage in intrasexual competition. Any validity to this theory? What do you think? Um, might well be. I do remember you're you're putting that forward to uh, Christina of Summers. I don't think she was buying it. Yeah, well, she should have because I think I'm right. But go ahead. Well, you know, I think you could never underestimate the role of resentment in uh, right. powering the kinds of choices and uh, mental constructs that human beings create generally. But um, yeah, except that, uh, I, and I think probably um, Christina of Summers said this too. 
so many feminists are totally gorgeous women. And, you know, it, can you, just, can you it, name me many of them? <laughs> well, I, so I can know who they are so I could look them up. Um, I'm not thinking necessarily of, um, you know, widely known leaders of the movement, but I'm just thinking of, you know, young women I've met at these uh, talks that I've given. Uh, you know, they were beautiful mm. and, you know, Lord, beautiful, long, blonde hair, slim, lies, you know, and, and uh, so it didn't seem to make sense that, that, you know, that that would be how they were thinking. So I think I, in their cases, that's why I said for a particular group, in their cases, we might argue that the my Munchausen argument is operating or the, the victimology, uh, you know, angle is operating. So in other words, it's not as though every single radical feminist fits under the rubric of what I just said. But certainly the ones who are trying to suppress the expression of beauty in other yeah. women. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, I think I sh there should be a study that's done on this. Maybe I should, I should do that study. <laughs> it just can't make sense that a woman who has grown up in, a, in, the, in, the, in this thing called the real world, where she clearly sees that there is this thing called biology in terms of how men and women respond to one another. And again, the average three-year-old is aware of those realities. And if she is gorgeous and she is getting all of her ego strokes from male attention, she's unlikely to be at the forefront of holding a sign that says, you know, beauty is a patriarchal oppression because all of her lived reality suggests that she gets a lot of benefits from that beauty. So I think it, it's certainly <laughs> worth testing this hypothesis. It's worth testing it, but I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of um, not particularly attractive women who don't succumb to feminist ideology. And as I say, a lot of uh, very attractive ones who do. So yeah, it, it might be one strand. Certainly. I mean, let's let's put it this way. Uh, I used to be very, very thin. I used to have very, very low uh, body fat content. Uh, all my stomach muscles were beautiful. And then I grew older and I got fatter and I regrettably didn't grow to be tall. And so I can argue that all of the Hollywood images of the leading men being tall, svelte guys is really a conspiracy to make <laughs> Lebanese, Jewish, atheist, overweight, brown guys feel bad about themselves. Or I could recognize that all other things equal, women do prefer guys who have a swimmer's body type and who are taller rather than shorter. That doesn't mean that I'm going to be a celibate guy because there's endless other ways that I can compensate for some of the cues that I don't score well on. I could get high social status. I could have beautiful green eyes. I could be charismatic. I could be all sorts of things that allow me to eventually find a wonderful woman that I did end up marrying. So the problem is that you have to have a sense of personhood that is secure to say, yes, I may not score well on this, but I can compensate for it with something else. The problem with beauty, if that's one of the markers that defines your mating value on the mating market, if you don't score highly on that, you better come up with some delusional fantasy as to why this is happening. I mean, I saw a woman once on a documentary on sort of fat acceptance who was arguing basically that the reason when she goes to these speed dating things, she was, she was, you know, she was morbidly obese, I don't know, 500 pounds. And she wasn't arguing that there might be some in inherent reason why men might find her less attractive. She was disgusted that men had been taught 
to find her less attractive than Beyonce. So somebody who is so detached from reality, it's actually harmful to them, right? Because you could lose weight and look better, right? I mean, when I go see my physician, he repeatedly tells me, hey, Gad, you need to lose weight. He's not involved in a fattest conspiracy. He knows that all all other things considered, being thinner is better than being fatter. So it's not just sort of an academic exercise. It, you know, it, it leads to good outcomes to be grounded in reality, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that may well be part of it. Uh, and I do think that um, when, when uh, all of the world is telling young women that they are innocent victims, so whether they are attractive women or not, uh, whether they have other sources of self-validation, I think that itself is just such a seductive thing to be told that you are innocent, that you're harmed, and that, you know, people need to speak in hushed tones around you whenever you express your sense of those harms. And that becomes uh, such an incredible source of your, you know, how you uh, feel you matter in the world that uh, all other things fade away and become of secondary importance. Got you. Two more things, and then we can uh, wrap it up because I know you have to go. Uh, So I recently checked out a um, report that came out. Let me just read it here. It's from the World Economic Forum, the Global Gender Gap Index of 2015. So this is a a very formal, very clear quantitative means of trying to identify uh, globally gender gap on a whole bunch of metrics, social, economic, educational, health, and so on. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to read you the lowest ranking countries and let's try to put our collective heads together to see if there is any possible common theme that we could come up with because I can't come up with any maybe you could help me Uh, so here they are Saudi Arabia Oman Egypt Mali Lebanon Morocco Jordan Iran Chad Syria Pakistan and Yemen is there any way that we could find some sort of common thread that runs through these countries? Because one might argue that there is a thing called the patriarchy and it exists in those societies for a particular reason. Care to mm. comment about that? Do you think it might start with I and end oh, with sh- 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 oh. <laughs> People are watching. Come on, be, be politically correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. I mean, that, so you're thinking I is imagine? That, <laughs> right. Imagine, okay. That's it. Yeah. Imagine. Okay. Yeah. Got, got you. It, it's interesting how feminism is so silent on that question, isn't it? Well, it's that's so- what I was going to talk to you next. I mean, yeah. what is it going to take for decent, mm-hmm. honest, truly caring? Because I'm a true feminist because I, at great personal and professional risk, I speak about the plight of women in those regions mm-hmm. precisely because I'm disgusted by what happens to them. But yet, our sort of cafe latte sipping Western feminists are very quiet about it. Is there going to ever be a chance of them speaking on this or it would take testicular fortitude there, I say? (laughs) Yeah, I don't see it. I do not see it in the future. I think that feminism made a bargain with Islam uh, at at some point in the 1980s when the uh, whole victimology of feminism was becoming more and more complex and more and more hysterical and it decided that it could not criticize any of the others of Western heteropatriarchal capitalistic society. I mean, it really became 
not so much about men and women per se. It became about hating white, Western, heteropatriarchal, capitalistic society. So any of the others of that society must be admired, um, you know, must be allied with in, in mutual indignation and hatred against this monolith that oppresses all in these various ways. So that means that Islam will always get a pass, I think, from fashionable fe feminists. So, all right, so this is the last... Course, even Ayan Hirsi Ali, right, who you would think would be the poster child for you know, a moderate feminist voice talking about the true victimization of women under Islam. Of course, men are victimized under Islam as well. Uh, but you know, and she is is vilified. She's hated and disinvited from all sorts of places, even though she has lived that true persecuted reality, and that that garners her absolutely no credibility with any mainstream feminist that I know. And that to me proves that feminism is, you know, it's irrecoverable. It's 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 lost. Okay, and so that, that that's going to lead to my last question. I was hoping to end on a hopeful note, but I think you've preempted it with rather yeah. a, a a cascade of uh, pessimism. Yeah. I was going to say, do, do you think that fifty years from now we'll look back at this movement and how it autocorrected itself and it was sort of a little bleep on the radar? Or based on what you just said, no, you you see it as it's never going to change. It's irrevocably damaged. And what does that mean then for, for our public discourse? I mean, are we doomed? How do we, how do we, is there any way to reclaim the discourse? I think we are doomed actually, Gad, I have to say. Uh, and uh, I don't know what the end is going to look like, but I don't see any autocorrect. Uh, if you look at Europe and what's going on in Europe in these heavily feministic societies, that are being overrun by violence, uh, in which violence against women, rape in places like Sweden and Germany, etc., cetera, uh, is, is on the upswing. And is there any honest discussion about why that's going on? And it really does seem to be the perfect storm. You have men who have been marginalized and sidelined, told they're terrible for decades upon decades. And now there are immigrant men coming in who don't care at all about the feminist culture of you know, correct behavior. And instead of having an honest discussion about what's happening, what we have instead is uh, you know, cries of Islamophobia, if anyone tries to talk about what's going on, and just greater insistence on ever more pervasive feminist training, as if having you know, discussions about uh, rape and uh, discussions about women's liberation in workshops for immigrant men is going to solve everything. I think feminists see this as an opportunity. There'll be many more workshops and many more you know, government positions for, for them to take, as meanwhile the society descends into greater and great, greater chaos and violence. And so I, I don't I, I think there is really a built-in death wish in much of Western culture. Feminism became not so much about the elevation of women, although it is about that. It, it became about hating the West, hating the society that men mostly built, which is the best society that's ever been created for human flourishing. And yet that is hated by the vast majority of right-thinking academics and members of the intel intelligentsia and the political class. I think they would rather die than have their worldview change. And what's astonishing, just to kind of end it on this note, uh, what's astonishing is that the societies that have led to the greatest 
amount of emancipation of women. And now that doesn't mean, of course, that there isn't sexism that still exists. But if we look at the plight right. of women in Western societies, uh, we could all agree that that is the, 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 the society that has led to the greatest amount of freedom for women. That is despised. Yet the societies that by definition historically are the absolutely most brutal in their treatment of women. And I mean, this is quantifiable. It's again, as clear as the existence of gravity. Those are the ones that are fetishized. Those are the mm -hmm. ones that we fantasize about. Those are the ones that we aspire to protect. So it, I think you're right. I mean, it's a, it's a form of deep pathology. But here's where I think I will introduce, I'm not going to say optimism, but certainly a dose of reality. At some point, okay. men will wake up. Not all men are castrated. The, the right kind of men who are open to rising to that challenge will wake up and it won't be ugly. It won't be pretty. The problem is that it will yeah. be violence everywhere. Yeah. In other words, we will have a repeat of Beirut and Sarajevo everywhere globally. And it's a real shame because it is something that was created peacefully by the yeah. West and to try to solve it will require massive bloodshed. So it could be solved, but it won't be pretty. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's what I think, too. And it is really a shame because it could be solved now. Um, and uh, but we're not going to. We're going to let it get worse and worse and worse. And, and you know, when you talk about men stepping up, um, yeah, some men do try to and they end up in jail or they end up out of a job or, or you know, they end up committing suicide because they're so full of despair at what has happened to them when they have tried to do something. And, and I think that will continue too. I think more and more people will be put in jail for saying politically incorrect things or, or doing the wrong thing. And yeah, eventually we will descend into, into chaos and something will arise out of that, but I don't think we'll see it in our lifetimes. Right. And very sad. Anything that you want to uh, promote or, or tell our viewers about that they may not be familiar with, that's not public yet, that you'd like to plug at this point, any projects that you're working on, books, websites, anything? Yeah, um, I'm working on a book called Sons of Feminism. And it is a book that I hope would be a game changer. So see, I have a little bit of little bit of hope still, uh, because I'd like it to be read by um, you know just ordinary men and women, especially women who think that who don't who aren't interested in these issues and think that feminism is about equality and making society better. And I want it to be a series of uh, narrative style essays about men's experience growing up under the reign of feminism. And that could have to do with their family life. It could have to do with their experiencing of experience of, you know, dating or college or marriage, divorce, losing, you know, their children, whatever it happens to be. Uh, and so I'm inviting men who have an experience that they would like to share to send that to me. I'm looking for uh, essays of about 5,000 words in length or a little bit less than that, if they wish, uh, uh, answering the question, uh, what has your life been like under feminism? What has feminism, feminism meant for you as a man? And when is this slated for, if all goes well? When will it be out, you think? Yeah. I would like to assemble the uh, collection at the end of, the, uh, of this summer or early fall. So they have men have the summer to write it if they want to, and they can send it to me at my email address, which is piamango at uottawa.ca. Hey, great. Thank you so much. Looks like, sounds like a very exciting project. Real pleasure talking to you. Stay Thank on you. the line. Uh, thanks, guys. Please share the video. Let's spread some good ideas. Cheers.